liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Today I had on Kurt Wuckert Jr. He is the chief Bitcoin historian at CoinGeek.com, and he is a wealth of information. I was absolutely floored by everything he knew. So do not miss this episode. It's mind-blowing. We get into who Satoshi was, is, likely is, and it is, man, eye-opening. So I think you guys will get a lot from this. Obviously, we also talk about fiat currency and why cryptocurrency is hopefully the solution to this this problem that has plagued humanity for eons so i think that uh it's really important that when you get an opportunity you work with liberty-minded people and if you are trying to get away from the fiat system it's important that you migrate towards hard assets at some point and i was lucky enough to get a sponsor for tonight's episode they are wearerealty.com Go to W-E-A-R-E-R-E-A-L-T-Y.com. They can help you with buying, selling, or investing in real estate. If you're like me, if you own a house in a blue state with a ton of equity and you're looking to migrate out of there, why not work work with someone who believes in personal liberty and is an entrepreneur uh, in this arena? I think it makes a ton of sense to work with people that see the world the way you do. They can talk to you openly and honestly and vice versa so that you guys know that you're working with the right people again go to wearerealty.com if you're looking to buy or sell or invest that's your first stop wearerealty.com support the people that support the shows that you love so that i can continue to deliver what you need let's get into the show welcome everybody to another episode of liberty lockdown uh we've had a, a lot of a lot of news regarding crypto so i thought i'd have in the chief Bitcoin historian himself, Kurt Wilkert Jr. Welcome aboard. Hey, good to be here. Thanks, man. Um, so go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll hop right into it. So uh, like you said, I am the chief Bitcoin historian at CoinGeek.com. Uh, my Bitcoin story goes back to 2012. So I had uh, a guy that wanted to pay me in Bitcoin for a, a handful of posters. Uh, I owned a printing company at the time. He told me it was like video game money. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> okay, that's cool. I had no idea. never heard of it. A um, few weeks after, I, I, I did a little digging. Like, okay, what the heck is this Bitcoin thing all about? Uh, I was always like a gold bug activist kind of guy, uh, anti-federal reserve, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I understood like monetary politics uh, a bit. And uh, two guys stood out. Uh, one was Roger Ver and... Uh, two was Adam Kokesh uh, and both guys were super into Bitcoin at the time. And I was like, Hey, this is, this is awesome. I'm super into it. So I got into the mining space. Uh, I, I had a small mining operation with a couple of partners from 2013 to early 2015. I was involved in the whole Bitcoin civil war, the scaling debate, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. I mined Ethereum and Monero early, like 2015, 2016 on, on those. Wow. Uh, I ended up being the fundamental analyst for a company called Crypto Traders, uh, which was like a trading and educational group. Uh, I still technically hold that role as as head fundamental analyst. Uh, so I spent my entire time during the 2017 bull run 
just researching every single project, getting to know all the lead developers that I could. Why, you know, why is this going to pump? What is this? Like, are they all shit coins? That kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, never really took a break. I'm, I'm that guy that stuck through all the, the bear markets. I, I've been consulting. I currently consult a number of startups uh, as long or as, as well as working with CoinGeek full-time where I host a live stream myself uh, that goes across social media and I write at least one editorial a week, just sort of about like anecdotes and history of Bitcoin and some market analysis kind of stuff too. But I'm, I'm much more into the tech, culture, politics, and and all of that. Beautiful. Well, there, I get asked about this all the time, as you would expect, because For Bitcoin sure. has skyrocketed. All the all the altcoins, all the shit coins, everything has skyrocketed. So everyone's scrambling, trying to figure out what yeah. to do. Um, I think that. Well, first off, a lot of people are going to learn the hard way what a pump and dump is. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and from a, an old money guy who doesn't understand crypto fully, uh, it looks like this space is extremely frothy and it's filled with scammers. Is that yep. a fair assessment? I think that is quite a fair assessment. Uh, in fact, I use the word frothy quite often. My wife <laughs> uh, read one of my articles last week and said, frothy that's a really good word for it <laughs> and and you're absolutely right it's 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 mating season that you know you can't see through the water it's so hazy uh, you know you got elon musk on saturday night live and everyone thinks dogecoin's gonna pump. it's just it's classic i have my my 70 plus year old father-in-law calling and ask me how to buy and yeah exactly you know, these are these are those uh those toppy signals there unfortunately yeah well <laughs> and, and I, I because I wasn't a player in the 2017 bull run, I wasn't familiar with the fact that apparently a ton of those coins that were also pumped alongside Bitcoin are now at zero. Is that true? I mean, practically, a yeah. lot of them still technically exist, but they're you know they've lost 99 percent of their value over the last okay. three plus years and that kind of thing. There's a few mainstays, like there are a few things that you know have stuck around quite a bit. Sure. You know, your classic. Uh, I mean, Ethereum obviously is is hit all time high in the last few days, uh, but like even things like XRP and Litecoin, uh, Stellar Lumen, some of these things have been around for five years or, or more. Uh, you know, Bitcoin Cash. Uh, I'm a big BSV supporter, uh, so a lot of these things have have you know been percolating for a long time. And well, sorry, uh, could you explain what what BSV is? I don't know that one. So uh, in in 2017, uh, Bitcoin Cash split away from uh, Bitcoin Core. It was basically the one of the major battles of the Bitcoin civil war, the big scaling debate um, that was late 2017 uh, Bitcoin cashers were the big blockers. They, they took the Bitcoin code. They wanted to leave it unadulterated and let it scale on chain the way that uh, we believed that Satoshi Nakamoto always wanted it to. Things were merry for uh, about nine months until uh, came time for one of the next upgrade periods and a big part of the community, the majority of the hash power said, uh, hey, now we want to raise the block size again and uh, let's keep scaling on chain. And about half the community said, ah, there's not really a reason for it. We want to stay the same. And it, it basically turned into another scaling debate between uh, big blockers and small blockers, which is in a very basic sense, small blockers believe that uh, it's good to keep the total size of the blockchain small so that average people can run the chain on their own computers. And then big blockers say, no, it's more important to have infinite scalability and and for these things to be elastic and that that they can take on you know hey let's bring on a hundred thousand new users users a week and that requires some infrastructural work to be done ahead of time it's like building highways before you build cities so yeah that's, uh, that's roger that's roger bear's 
opinion, right? He's it was initially. Uh, Roger, in, in this case, was the small blocker. Uh, he had been a big blocker for a very long time, but in the BCH versus BSV split, he advocated and stuck along with the, the guys who wanted to keep the block size at 32 megabytes every 10 minutes. So only 32 megabytes of data can go across the Bitcoin Cash Network in a 10-minute period. And that's, you know, it's, it's not an insignificant amount of transactions, but mm-hmm. it's also not global level payments by, you know, by several orders of magnitude. Uh, BSV split away from Bitcoin Cash, um, opened up all protocol parameters. Uh, so on Bitcoin SV, if you want to try to push a, a gigabyte block or a 10 gigabyte block or a terabyte block full of micropayments or full of, you know, anything you want, frankly, you can, you can push an operating system in a Bitcoin SV transaction and then use that operating system from the blockchain and do whatever else you want to do with an operating system that's on the blockchain. So uh, stuff like that. Um, Bitcoin SV is the most superlative, wide open, no limits version of of Bitcoin. And is it? Sorry, what's the what's the SV stand for? Uh, Satoshi Vision. Oh, so really? The the idea has all the the big blockers have always had this notion that Satoshi very clearly wanted Bitcoin to be scale, scale on chain. That when he put it out, he said very clearly, "This is set in stone. It never hits a scaling ceiling." We could beat Visa today if you just had the balls. Like, this is who Satoshi was. And there's been this massive onslaught of people that show up to say, mm, Bitcoin can't. Bitcoin's really not efficient. Bitcoin can't do this and that. And, and then you get these uh, computer scientist guys that just start turning stuff off and convincing the community who are ignorant because not everybody's a computer scientist. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you believe the guy that's got the highest qualifications and he says, oh, it's not safe. We need to do this. And People generally follow, and uh, hmm. but the well, big, is- the big blockers they, they believe in simple, scalable. Like Bitcoin was fundamentally good when it came out, and we believe that it 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 can be money for the world and and everything else as it's originally structured. I got you. Yes. So um, let's let's get into to the history of Bitcoin a little bit and and the the theories as to who Satoshi was, what yep. what this project was all about. Um, what it what it might be about in in a more sinister worldview, like ev- everything everything we can think of. Let's just uh, let's just break it all down. Sure. Uh, so I mean, gosh, we could go back to the 1970s. Frankly, uh, the the cypherpunk movement. Basically, as soon as the dollar came off the gold standard, uh, libertarian minded people started to say, "Hey, fiat currency is bad. This is going to lead to generations of war." And and you know, funding all these things, devaluing the dollar, inflation is going to kill us. Uh, from that, uh, the cypherpunk movement and really the the reemergence of the the Mises Institute and, and those kind of people mm-hmm. came about to really bang on on monetary policy. Well, the tech guys uh, tried creating digital cash for about twenty years, uh, failing and failing. Uh, Milton Friedman, even uh, in the late '90s, said, hey, "Man, the one the one thing we're missing is a good electronic cash system. We really need digital cash." Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, that was not long before he died. Um, and it didn't exist yet. Like there had been attempts. There was Bitgold and eGold and Karma. There was Liberty Dollars. There's all kinds of these things, but they all failed because they all had um, either technical or economic points of failure that allowed them to be exploited. And then you couldn't trust the system and then they would just go away. Mm-hmm. In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto put out a white paper saying, I've solved various uh, scientific uh, computer science problems that make an electronic cash system feasible. It's distributed. There's no single point of failure. 
you'd have to shut down whole gigantic parts of the internet to stop it. And uh, it allows for micropayments it, and it, it fundamentally disrupts all of, of online commerce. Internet commerce will never be the same thanks to Bitcoin. Well, giant frenzy uh, came about at that point. All, all these people, first of all, chuckling like, well, no, that doesn't work. We've seen, we've seen this again. Oh, here's, right. here's digital cash number 15. Like this guy's just going to you know, fall in the trash heap of, of history. Like everybody else did, but then it just kind of kept developing and people are interested. And you know, all the, all the people that were naysayers, Satoshi just had a very clear answer for them every time. Oh, well, if, if you have nodes distributed and you have proof of work and, and you burn a little bit of hash power, you give an honest signal. It's, it's not really, it's secured by the tech, but it's also secured by the economics. And it's also secured by you wanting to compete with me and whoever provides the most value to the network gets the most value back. And so it's like this perfect uh, competitive hierarchy. And in fact, I would argue it is the single greatest experiment in pure free market economics, maybe not ever, but, but in the last generation or two, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's, yeah. And, it and, and it's become all of these things. I mean, it, the debates really started quickly. Uh, in fact, the very first person to respond, I was like a pseudonym named James Donald. Uh, we don't know his real name, but uh, some kind of criminal underbelly sort of guy, but responds back to Satoshi Nakamoto and says, that ah, doesn't scale. It doesn't work. Everyone would need to run a node and uh, it's an altruistic system. And then that can't scale. And Satoshi laughed at him and said, Hey man, that's uh you don't get it, but you'll see. And it's funny because that worldview, James Donald's worldview has become the predominant worldview in Bitcoin. Cool. Uh, so BTC fundamentally believes that every person should run their own node and we should all, uh, we should all have a say in the governance of Bitcoin because we're these sovereign individuals. And like, I, I understand that to a degree, but that takes away, like that creates a central planning vector. Like, if you let Bitcoin be unbounded and unscaled, it allows the most competitive person to uh, to protect the network and scale the network and govern the network. And that's actually what we want, right? You know, free markets uh, suss out the best opportunities and, and the best people in the best places. Not always perfectly, but over time, it, you generally get more desirable outcomes when you allow people to be free. But uh, that kind of became a giant debate. And um, it culminated, well, it culminated a few times. Uh, First in 2012, uh, there was a, a big run-up in, in the price. So Bitcoin didn't really have a price until late in 2010. It wasn't really traded for much. Guys were like, Here, here's 10,000 Bitcoins and buy me a, a pizza, right. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? And, uh, and it, was just, it was just haphazard like that. But uh, people started trading it. Uh, you know, there was, there was, hey, it's a penny. And then, hey, it's a dollar. And, hey, it's $10. And people, you know, just getting increasingly excited and realizing, Oh shoot! I mined a hundred thousand of these bitcoins, and now I've got, I've got fifty grand, and I'm just, you know, I'm a computer science student in college. Like this could, you know, I could, I could get a cool, yeah, you know, I, I buy a nice car and buy a decent house, that kind of thing, and and that's really when the monetary activists showed up. You had a lot of guys showing up and saying like, hey, if we just, if we just winnow this down into just focusing really hard on the scarcity aspect of things, like it's digital gold, and you, you'll hear that phrase all the time. Yeah, Bitcoin's digital gold. And it is, it's not, not digital gold, but where, where I think they forget is that Satoshi very, very plainly said it's frictionless digital gold. He believed that, well, yeah, it's gold, but you can send, you know, a thousandth of a penny to anybody in the world so that you can do business as easily in South Carolina as you can in South Korea. And isn't that, 
isn't that revolutionary? And the response very slowly but surely became, no, that's not revolutionary. Uh, we just want this savings account that nobody can tax and nobody can take. And we don't want the government to be able to confiscate our money and, and tax us on our, on our stuff. Mm-hmm. And I get that totally, totally valid, you know, something that's definitely needed uh, in, in big parts of the world, but they deprecated a lot of features of Bitcoin uh, to do that. And so uh, in 2013, there was a big push for uh, something called the RBF protocol. It's the re- replaced by fee, making it that unconfirmed Bitcoin transactions are no longer safe. You have to wait for block confirmation, which is on average about 10 minutes. Mm. Uh, so that meant that, oh, okay, well, that means that I can't go buy a sandwich unless I'm willing to wait for 10 minutes for, for a confirmation. It might not even get into the next block. I might have to wait a few blocks. And then immediately people are saying, ah, well, Bitcoin doesn't really work for payments. It's not really meant to be that. It's the savings technology. And so that was a battle that, you know, the big block, people like me who are like, mm, you know, Bitcoin's a digital cash system. Like that's the title of the paper. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and these paragraphs and paragraphs of Satoshi Nakamoto explaining these things to people. But uh, it kept going. Then uh, over the next couple of years, there was uh, deprecation of, of big parts of the Bitcoin stack. Uh, people don't realize, even most people today don't realize that Bitcoin was a general purpose computation platform. Basically, it's a distributed supercomputer in the cloud that anybody can access if you're willing to pay the toll with Bitcoins. And nobody utilized these things. But uh, because they weren't utilizing them, the, the core developers continued to shut off that functionality in order to just focus on that savings technology and um, went through <laughs> a whole bunch of drama there. Uh, then in 2014, 2015, um, Wired and Gizmodo magazine. This is uh, actually I should back up. Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared in late 2010, after about a year and a half in, in charge of the project. He just increasingly had difficulty with the core developers. That the developers are, hey, this is a community project. And he's like, no, it really isn't. It's set in stone. The protocol's good. It doesn't need to be changed. And oh no, but these security problems. And he's like, yes, it's imperfect, but it's imperfect on purpose. It allows people the opportunity to compete to secure it, and that's what keeps it secure is competition, not code. If you make code the thing that controls it, then uh, then it's always the best coder is in charge. And we don't want that. We want it to be the person who's willing to put the most work into securing the network using the, the stuff that I already set in motion. That's it's crucial for money to be unchanged and unchanging. And uh, so he disappeared uh, in kind of a, kind of a whimper, actually. He, he just sort of stopped responding uh, or he was responding less and less to people. And then he just sort of went away. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've come to learn that it's it's possible that his accounts were taken over. Maybe he was more pushed out than disappeared. But uh, a lot of this is still really contentious. But in 2015, about five years later, uh, Wired and Gizmodo magazines leaked a bunch of documents. And they doxed a scientist by the name of uh, Craig Wright, um, an Australian guy said, hey, we found Satoshi Nakamoto. This is the guy. And he denied it and said, nope, not me. Leave me out of this. And uh, when they went to go knock on his door about a week later in Melbourne, Australia, he was no longer there. Turns out the Australian tax office had raided his house uh, because of of the doxing. Like, oh, this is that Satoshi guy who's created this multi-billion dollar market of Mm. of money outside of our, our power structures. He owes us money. (laughs) <laughs> yes, his tax bill must be immense. And um, 
he made his way to the UK, uh, where he continued to deny that he was Satoshi Nakamoto until he went and uh, showed himself to a number of key people in the uh, in the industry. Um, he went to the lead developer of Bitcoin at the time, a guy named, by the name of Gavin Andreessen, uh, said, hey, I'm Satoshi. Here's my cryptographic keys. Here's a, a Bitcoin signature. And Gavin's like, okay, there it is. Good to meet you, Satoshi. It was pretty crazy. Wow. Uh, did similar things to a couple more people uh, and then went on the BBC to do a sort of... Um, you know, coming out party, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became clear uh, midway through that, that um, the BBC was looking for sort of a, looking for more of a drama story than a like, here's an interesting piece of news. And uh, Craig felt undermined by the whole thing, sort of refused to do the signature on film. Stuff went awry and uh, basically told the, the BBC that I will never be on TV again. Don't ever bother me. I didn't want any of this. I was doxxed and fuck you, peace out, long story yeah. short. Uh, so then immediately um, people got very, very upset. That's not Satoshi. That's not how he would have been. That's not the way that he signed is inappropriate because of X, Y, and Z. Then all these other technical things. Uh, Then interestingly, everyone that he signed for were removed from key positions in Bitcoin. uh, Unceremoniously also. So Gavin Andreessen, the guy I mentioned earlier, the lead developer, had his keys revoked. Like, Gavin, if you think that's Satoshi Nakamoto, you must be compromised. You're a danger to the project. project, We're burning your keys. Goodbye. Uh, And various other things. So all of a sudden, anybody connected to Craig Wright uh, became a a toxic uh, toxic element in Bitcoin. Can you explain what you mean by signature? What what was that? So are are you well for the sake of your audience? Uh, let's talk about PGP keys for a moment. Okay. Uh, if you're going to send an email, uh, let let's say you're uh, working forensics. Maybe you're a police officer and you need to send evidence cryptographically to another department. You're going to use email. Well, in order to prove that it's you. And in order to encrypt your thing, you would use what's called a PGP key. So this is uh, anybody that wants to look at how this works, just like YouTube, a video or something like public key cryptography. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically you send a key and you send an encrypted message. If you send it to their public key, they can unlock it and read it, but nobody else can unlock it and read it. Okay. So so if you're going to sign with your Bitcoin keys, Bitcoin keys work very much the same way. Uh, In fact, they're identical. Uh, They just use a different hashing algorithm, but um, you can predetermine a message uh, of a known block of data on a public key hash. So when you send a Bitcoin transaction, uh, it'll give you this hash. It's like 30-ish digits long uh, and you know, looks like nothing. But that key also can work to decode anything else. So if you have the private key that associates to that public key, you can say, uh, I'm going to type a message saying, you know, Liberty Lockdown is a kick-ass podcast. <laughs> and, but then I'll send it to you hashed. I'll send you a really long, it'll be hundreds of digits long. It's just a bunch of garbled junk. And then if I give you the public key, you should be able to plug it in and boom, it'll say Liberty Lockdown is a kick-ass podcast. And you're like, gotcha. oh, okay. Well, that can only work if you were the private key holder that you said you were. That's it's the only way that that works. And so, so people, yeah. So he was, he was set to do that on the BBC and then he, ref, he refused halfway through. So I can understand, I mean, given, given the scale of the claim to be Satoshi, yes. to be the creator of maybe the greatest innovation in our lifetime, yep. it, you're going to want extraordinary evidence that it's actually Indeed. him. 
it sounds as if you're a believer. What what has he shown that that makes you so confident? Um, for one, I've I've known Craig Wright for a number of years. Uh, okay. He's a prickly fellow. Uh, he he will he will more than apologize for uh, his his anger issues and his autism. Uh, he really is a genuinely difficult fellow, uh, especially <laughs> under pressure. Um, but he's a good guy, especially in private. Uh, if you talk to him about things, he's, he's one of the most decorated computer scientists alive. Uh, he owns more patents as an individual than anybody else living on the planet. Wow. Uh, all in digital forensics, uh, banking software, these sorts of things. Um, the reason that, and, and I haven't been proven beyond all doubt. He's not signed a block for me or sure. anything, but uh, I do know some of the people that um, knew him before actually even before Bitcoin existed. So I, I, I know a couple people who sort of knew he was working on Bitcoin before Bitcoin existed. So that's mm. circumstantial. Uh, but also in 2015, he was the first person, uh, he was on a panel uh, of, of other famous Bitcoiners at the time. And they brought him up. Nobody knew who he was. And they asked him a question. He starts going on about the Turing completeness of general computation in the Bitcoin stack. And well, if you have this output and you can create a looping script that allows you to do the, you know, and like, we're talking about some of the greatest computer scientists in the world sitting at the table, like looking at each other, like the hell is he talking? Like, I've, like, that's not even how Bitcoin works. Well, Nick Zabo, who's a, a famous, I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's the he's, guy that everybody wanted Bitcoin to gold. be Satoshi. Yes. Yeah. Everybody wanted him to be Satoshi. They're like, oh, Nick is probably Satoshi, you know, like, and, uh, and there's still a, a large contingent of people that do think that Nick Zabo is Satoshi, but uh, Nick is here and he, he's like, hang on. No, 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 no. Bitcoin doesn't do any of that. Bitcoin isn't Turing complete. And the way that you're, you know, and Craig stops him and he's like, no, look. And, and Craig goes on to explain, like you create this outer loop and Turing completeness in, in, computer science is a very ethereal concept. And that's yeah. actually what Nick Zabo says. He's like, no, 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 no. Ethereum is Turing complete. You're talking about a very uh, ethereal side concept. Very weird. Write a paper on it or something, dude. And like, it was very, very dismissive of Craig. And uh, Craig just says, well, here's what you can do. And goes on to explain it again. Like, you can use Bitcoin as a general purpose computer. It's more efficient than Ethereum because of X, Y, and Z. And just everyone on this panel is just sitting there like wanting to fight him. But you can see that all of them are unsure because they never looked like they didn't look that deep at the, at the code, the implementation, the network rules. So you can see they're, they're all, they're computer science experts, but none of them are Bitcoin experts. You know, they're, they're all sitting there like, Oh shoot. Like I only understand how to like send and receive and, and, there's this guy talking over our heads and we think he's lying, but we have no qualification <laughs> <laughs> to, to fight the guy. And so it kind of became this me immediately, you know, the internet's like, what the hell is he talking about? Well, Craig went on to prove this by creating transactions. Uh, there is currently um, the, the generally approved proof for Turing completeness of any system is to uh, play, play an app called the game of life. And what it does is it, 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 you take a transaction and it, it builds shapes. And then based on every decision that it makes, it makes another decision. And it just kind of keeps looping and creating this larger and larger sort of mandala shape thing. Mm -hmm. And a system can't do that unless it's Turing complete. Well, it's been running on Bitcoin SV, which is a just complete implementation of Bitcoin <laughs> for months now. And uh, so every time somebody's like, wow, Bitcoin isn't Turing complete, you can just send them the transaction and say, hey, <laughs> 
check this out. Let me, let me know when this computation stops. And they look at it and they're like, well, for fuck's sake, isn't this what that scammer was talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Huh? Interesting that all of your experts say that this is impossible and yet you see it with your eyes. That's fascinating. Yeah. So things like that, there's a ton of other examples like that where Craig was the guy who said, Oh, by the way, Bitcoin can do this. And again, everybody in the room, like "Mm, how, then he goes to explain how, and he's like, well, there's the, the reason this op code is here in the system. And then you see the people like the actual people who have worked in Bitcoin script say, nobody's ever used that, that line of code. We don't know what that line of code was there for. It just seemed like you know vestigial thing. And Craig's like, Oh yeah, well you can use it to open up payment channels and then it does this and this and this and this and this. And he just he just goes and goes and goes and goes. And you're like, mm. this this it, might be it. Him. <laughs> it starts to become not, you know, maybe not clear. And again, I don't want to be super definitive about it, but you start to look at it and say, who could know that was there except the architect? Incredible. And well, I'm that's I'm, where I'm at. I'm mutuals with Nick Sabo. So if uh okay. if I can get him and you to come on to, to, <laughs> to debate this, this would be incredible. Cause I, I think it's a really important question. Uh, you know, just given that there is this kind of deification of Satoshi that's sure. occurred because people, I mean, there's almost a religion around Bitcoin. Absolutely. Uh, I think there might actually be a religion around Bitcoin. If I'm being honest, there is, uh, yeah. there absolutely is. But, uh, uh, what I, my understanding is that there's a, a million of the 21 million Bitcoin that have essentially never moved from its inception mm-hmm. and people believe that Satoshi is the owner of those. So yes. would that not make him one of the richest people on earth? Indeed it would. Uh, in fact, there is a man by the name of Ira Kleiman, uh, who is the, he is the alleged heir of Dave Kleiman, who likely worked with Craig Wright on the creation of, of Bitcoin a bit. Uh, Dave Kleiman was old friends with Craig Wright. Um, Ira alleges that Dave was a partner in the Satoshi Nakamoto team and is suing Craig for the last three years now for roughly 1.1 million Bitcoins, uh, which today is just an astronomical amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, whether or not, you know, we we believe that Craig is, uh, Ira Kleiman has been willing to spend millions and millions of dollars of his own money to sue Craig for the private keys of that Bitcoin, uh, and he's been he's been sponsored by some of the biggest names in the blockchain space to to get those bitcoins. So, you know, you'll you'll have organizations that uh, like to say, "Oh no, Craig writes a fraud. There's no way he's Satoshi." Uh, meanwhile, writing checks out of the out of the other department to Craig or to uh, Ira Kleiman's legal team to to go get those bitcoins. <laughs> so, uh, well, there's there's a lot of that kind of thing going on too. What do you think? What, what is he doing with those million? I mean, is it? They you haven't know, moved. I know. Doing I know. Nothing. <laughs> I, well, they're doing a lot. They're the greatest investment in the history of the world. I mean, yeah. So it, it's just fascinating to me. So, um, God, I have so many questions. My brain's like overflowing. <laughs> I, uh, I've been talking a lot. So by, by all means, feed me questions. I'll give you quick answers. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, first off, what is Craig, is Craig just trying to have a private life and he wants to be left alone at this point? Because it sounds he sounds like such a great resource for guiding people because there's all of these spinoffs that are happening to try and alleviate these perceived issues with Bitcoin as it stands today, that it sounds as if, if he's correct, 
many of these things may be alleviated if they use the code properly. Is that a fair yep. assessment? That is a, a generally fair assessment. Yes. Um, Craig, Craig has mostly left public life. Uh, he was on Twitter for a while, but it was just nonstop trolling. And uh, I believe his account got shut down uh, due to you know, some of the, some of the other drama going on there. Uh, Twitter actually being a big uh, funder of Craig's opponents. So then all of a sudden uh, Craig's account disappears. Uh, <laughs> but, oh so so there, there's, there's a lot of drama there. If you want to go down the, the crazy rabbit hole, there's a lot of crazy, but um, Craig is the chief scientist at a computer science research company called Enchain, uh, and they are working almost entirely on Bitcoin SV related technology. Now, if you break down BTC, BCH, and BSV, they're the three major uh, versions of Bitcoin that exist. They're, they're similar in a lot of ways. Like they all are fundamentally Bitcoin's code, uh, but BTC, the, the big Bitcoin, the 55000 or $60,000 Bitcoin is, uh, has had a bunch of stuff removed and had a bunch of other things added. Then Bitcoin Cash stripped away some of those additions, added their own things. BSV, uh, after splitting from BCH, removed everything that was added by every developer after 2009 and then recoded all of it 100% from scratch to re-implement the original protocol, but with updated software. So it is the full original Bitcoin rule set, but implemented in new, new actual code. So a couple of, couple of guys, well, a couple, they have about a hundred <laughs> engineers there working. So, wow. uh, but well, under, what's, under the, the, what's the fiat price on that right now? BSV is probably 400 and uh, it's about 400 bucks right now. And, and it's still capped at 21 million. Yep. Fundamentally, everything that you've been told uh, about Bitcoin applies to Bitcoin SV. So there's, there's 21 million coins. It is mined by SHA-256. Uh, so based off everything you've told me so far, it sounds as if you're a bigger believer than you, in BSV than you are BTC. Indeed, I, I am. Uh, wow. BTC, BTC can only send six megabytes of data across the globe per hour. And with six megabytes, that's not a lot of transactions. Uh, and if you were to pay for all six megabytes, if you wanted to take up the entire uh, hour of, of the BTC network, it would cost you somewhere around $30,000 hmm. uh, to send those transactions around. Meanwhile, uh, you could probably do, I don't want to overestimate, but you could probably do 100 million more transactions on BSV for the cost, maybe even more. Well, I've had enough maximalists on my show to know the counter argument, so I'll throw them at you. They sure. say that that you're basically sacrificing security anytime you increase the amount of data flow. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, it, it, and also they would say that Lightning Network solves this issue on the BTC blockchain. So, what? Give me, give me both of those answers if you could. Uh, two, two things. Lightning Network reintroduces the traveling salesman problem. Uh, there's a massive routing problem in, in Lightning Network. So in order to use Lightning Network, uh, you either need to let it be centralized into a few nodes that have a lot of liquidity. Uh, and that can be okay. I, I don't want to say that's the worst thing in the world, but it's certainly not the cypherpunk revolution that people make it sound like it is. Right. It's uh, dangerous if, again. If, if I'm ultimately using MasterCard's Lightning node, <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't exactly feel like a you know, black-shirted rebel or anything like that. But mm. <laughs> uh and then as far as, um, you know, the network security, I, you know, I, a lot of that stuff is, is, is theory. Like 
we we have had a theoretical conversation about Bitcoin for about 12 years. Right. We have never seen a practical attack on Bitcoin that has borne out any of those risks. Now, they say all the time, like, oh, BSV only has less than 1% of the hash power of BTC. Anybody, you know, a miner, a BTC miner could fart in the direction of BSV and it would just destroy the whole chain. And it's like, I just keep saying, do it. Like, if it, if it costs you five grand an hour, go do it. Why Why does nobody do it? Well, well it's, it's a waste of time. Like, well, we're this existential threat to your maximalism. So, you know, if, if I was, you know, like, just just do it, man. Like, yeah. nut up or shut up is, is the way I feel about it. So and, you're and, confident that they can't do it? No, they absolutely can't do it. So people people only think about mining in in the sense of of the hash power and no thought. They think of miners as computers, and they are. But these computers are steered by people. Uh, you know, and as an Austrian, I like to say only humans act, and so there are only individuals act. I don't remember the exact quote now, sure, but sure. if if you break down mining, if you actually look at the mining distribution of BTC, BCH, and BSV. Almost every single miner that's mining blocks on one chain is also mining blocks on all the other chains. So you can say, yes, BSV only has that 1% of the hash rate of BTC. However, the guys that are finding blocks on BSV are the same guys that are finding blocks on BTC. And that's a very deliberate decision that they make. So, you know, the the, the maximalists of the world can talk about, ah, you know, they're it's all a bunch of nobodies. But if you actually talk to like the owner of F2 pool, who right now I believe has the most hash power in the world, they are the largest SHA-256 miner on earth. They mine blocks on BTC, BCH, and BSV almost every day. So to them, (laughs) if somebody were to attack BSV, they're looking at it and saying, hey, I'm mining BSV. I'm keeping that as a hedge on my other investments or or whatever else. Maybe they're BSV maximalists and they just keep their mouth shut because they don't want to be involved in the drama. But if if they were if somebody were to start to attack F2 pools BSV stack, I have to believe that F2 pool would say, "Hey, buddy, like I'm just going to push my hash power here and make sure that this chain doesn't get reorganized and, and messed with." Hmm. So, and that's the case across the board. Miners are deliberate economic actors who have the most incentive to make every moment of their mining count. So, if they screw around, they they go out of business very fast. We can look at. Bitmain, the, you know, the kings of four years ago are very, very, very beat up today because they made some bad decisions. Any miner can be replaced. So the fact that almost all of them are mining all three versions of Bitcoin tells me that, that this existential threat of like, oh, you're just going to get reorged. You're just going to get double spent. You're just like none of these, like that's all, it's, it's, it's like Monday morning quarterbacking by guys that have absolutely no skin in the game. And uh, they make money by being talking heads. And I mean, I do too, but, you know, <laughs> but, but people, people break it into something very technical and, and they don't even ask. When was the last time you saw the CEO of a mining company ask this question? Hmm. The answer is never. They hmm. don't answer this question because they don't want you to know they're playing a much longer game than the pundits are. That's fascinating. Well, I, I can't wait to get the pushback from the maximalists that I've had on my show to see. <laughs> Because I'm honestly, I'm open to these conversations. I think they're really important because these are, these are very, there are very smart people on both sides of all of these debates. And I, I think that's what makes it so fascinating to someone Indeed. like me, who is not a computer programmer, to try and just hear the compelling nature of each side and be like, okay, mm-hmm. this is what I think is going on. And, and it's, uh, it's, just, it's just very, 
I don't know. It's one of the most interesting things I've ever encountered. And I think it's because I'm an old money guy who doesn't understand this space, but it has all of the same like calling cards of what I do know about. So oh, for sure. I, I can still sit on the sideline and be like, this is just a great game to watch. Like it's just, yep. it's super fascinating. So I, I agree for the, for the conspiracy minded, there are many people in the, in the libertarian and cap space that are so, I mean, I'm just going to call them what they are. They're black pilled. And they believe mm -hmm. that, that Bitcoin is some deep state DARPA project that, you know, they're, they're going to basically use this to transition us from fiat to electronic currency, which electronic currency is actually more trackable. And th this is the whole game plan. This is, this is their thesis. So can you disabuse them of that notion? Is there any merit to it? What do you think? Um, it's, it's a yes and no. Uh, while there are multiple chains running and competing for the Bitcoin title, it is a, it is a both and, frankly. Okay. Um, I have long criticized uh, the, the BTC people will say that they're too decentralized to take down. There, there's, there's no single point of failure on, on them. They're, you know, they can't be stopped. However, if you follow the money and you look at all of the significant developers, you look at all the significant custodians, exchanges, uh, basically every brand that you can think of in the BTC space, they almost all go, well, actually, if you, if you were to collect about five venture capitalist groups around the world, you can track down about 99% of the money that goes into the entire BTC space. Uh, that, that goes to uh, a venture, I'll name a few venture firms. Digital Currency Group uh, is the biggest one. Uh, Digital Garage, Blockstream Capital, Axa Ventures, and there's one or two other ones too. But if you look at their, their portfolio companies, it's everyone from Coinbase to Kraken. So those are your big exchanges. Uh, you can go to the big custodians. So that's BitGo, Fireblocks. Uh, these are the people that hold for, for the big firms that want to hold Bitcoin. Uh, it's Grayscale Investments, uh, which is, you know, the Grayscale. They do that basket uh, stock, the Bitcoin stock that you can buy on, on the stock exchange. Uh, you can even look at some of the media partners. So Coindesk, also owned by these venture capital firms. So, so they're kind of controlling all the infrastructure, all of the information. And then if you look at all the influencers, so you got your like your Peter McCormick's and uh, you know some of the other people you'll see that have big podcasts or they're big on Twitter. Right. They'll they'll give their shout outs, their thank yous, like hey, you know this podcast sponsored by Kraken and all you know all the all these same brands again. And 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 they're all saying, oh, we're all decentralized. We're all no, we all just independently agree about about all these things and. Uh, it's fascinating because you can follow that money from those firms. These are all very progressive blockchain-y sounding venture firms. And you can take them one step up and almost all of them are owned by a, a mix of uh, MasterCard, uh, New York Life Insurance, uh, AXA Global, which is the largest insurer in the, uh, in the European Union, and then a company called RIT. Uh, RIT Investment sounds really, really cool, but what RIT stands for is the Rothschild Investment Trust, which is the oldest trust. <laughs> Conspiracy the theories mind going crazy. <laughs> Indeed. So Jacob Rothschild, uh, one of the biggest investors in the entire blockchain space. Uh, so, I mean, we're looking at, at literally all of their money. So this is Blockstream. This is the big Blockstream conspiracy. And they're like, oh no, we're just, we just propose code. And it's like, well, yeah, but everyone runs your code for the last five years and everyone who's proposed competing code is kicked out of the community. So you're the de facto sovereigns over BTC, Bitcoin core. Wow. Uh, and so Blockstream is owned uh, by that same group. 
Lightning Labs is owned by that whole same group. <laughs> now I'm getting uh, nervous. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and, and again, it's it's fine. Like, I, I'm, I'm actually not a conspiracy theorist. I, sure. I look at this from a business standpoint. And if I were to, if I was in 2012, 13, 14, I was some kind of like research executive or something at MasterCard. And I see this Bitcoin thing bubbling up on the internet, do a little research and say, hmm, can compete with Visa today at a fraction of the cost and global payments and the digital identity and all yeah. these different things. I'm saying, okay, who's in charge of this product and how much does it cost to buy them out? Because that's, that's what you do when you own a big player, you buy out your disruptive competitors. Yeah. Well, so, what Blockbuster should have done to Netflix, but they did precisely, exactly. exactly. You know, and it's, you know, you can look at that as nefarious or you can look at it as just basic business practice well, mergers and acquisitions. There's nothing immoral about it. Exactly. So I, I think a lot of that is what went on. I do not think it was some kind of DARPA experiment. I don't think Bitcoin started nefariously. I really genuinely believe that that Bitcoin was proposed as a, a libertarian digital cash system. Uh, it was a way to, you know, speed up payments for like the gambling industry and, and some of these basic internet commerce things that, you know, the easy ones like, sure, sure. Hey, I, need, I need to send money to this island <laughs> to to play poker and I can't do that with my bank account. I can't do this and that. I can't use my credit card. So Bitcoin solved a lot of those cases first. Um, a lot of this is, is the other part of why the Bitcoin scaling war came about. So Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, they were basically just different sets of people who independently became Bitcoin rich, who were saying like, well, you know what? I'm going to fight. I'm, I'll fight against Blockstream and, and their MasterCard backers and all these people and uh, so there's a mix of that. So um, it's one of the other reasons why I'm a big fan of BSV, the, the big money in BSV uh, comes from a billionaire uh, by the name of Calvin Ayer. Uh, he's a gambling tycoon. Uh, he basically, he brought internet to Canada, became a multimillionaire, spun that money into creating the entire online gambling industry as the CEO of Bodog Brands. Uh, and he took his Bodog money and put it like millions into Bitcoin in 2010 uh, and now is a, a Bitcoin billionaire, but he was a billionaire before he was a Bitcoin guy. And, and now he uh, owns a bunch of hash power, a bunch of mining, a bunch of infrastructure companies, uh, but it's independent. He invests only in Bitcoin SV related startups, uh, infrastructure and that kind of thing. Uh, so he's a big VC in the BSV space, but there's a lot of other independent venture capitalists in BSV too, but none of that old world money. Like you can audit everybody up every chain and there's no money coming from Rothschild Investment Trust or MasterCard right. or Visa or any of those. No, nothing things, to get our is... hackles up. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, well, I, yeah. I, I had an opportunity in, I think it was 2010 or 11, because I've been a libertarian basically since childhood. So I, I rented out the upstairs of my house, which was the largest portion of my home a uh, long time ago. And I rented it out to two libertarians and one of them approached me when Bitcoin was just like basically a whisper. Like I, I didn't even know anything about it. And he comes to me and he says, Hey man, if you split the utility bill, the increase in the utility bill with me, I'll give you half of all of the Bitcoin that we mine. <laughs> and I tell him to kick rocks. I tell him no. <laughs> um, Cause I didn't know what the fuck it was. And sure. it is, it is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. I would have had thousands of Bitcoin most likely uh, from that, from that few years that he was my tenant yep. and God, I need to reach out to him and see if he actually did it. Cause I swear if I, if I 
not only did I screw myself over, but if I prevented him from going down the mining path, I'll feel yeah, terrible. Yeah, that's, that's some bad karma. <laughs> oh, it is, man. It is. I mean, it's just out of my own ignorance, but it's, um, you know, I have to forgive myself because ultimately, who knew? You know, very, very few people yeah. actually understood what we were getting ourselves into no, back then. Sure. Um, so it's, it's just, it's one of those stories. But I, I think that it's really important for, for me to um, reflect on that because now I'm looking at all these these upstart cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. and I'm trying to evaluate, am I, am I missing the boat again? Like, is this, <laughs> is this a, another opportunity that I'm, I'm dismissing because so many of these are clear pump and dump schemes. Yeah. Um, are there, are there any other than what'd you say? You said other than BSV that you actually believe in? Not really. I, I actually tend to think that, that, at the very best, these things will fill a niche. Like, so we look at Ethereum, for example. Uh, they're, they're doing the DeFi thing. They're doing the NFTs. Like, there's a lot of value being created uh, by people using the blockchain. Uh, but it's all based on the exit. It's based on the liquidity of Ethereum that you can turn it back into dollars. Right. So if I'm an artist and I'm making an NFT, I'm going to sell it on OpenSea or, or wherever, Rarible or some of these other places that are these NFT marketplaces. But ultimately, I'm cashing out the US dollars. I'm not really using Ethereum for anything except liquidity to exit to fiat currency again. And it's because Ethereum is really only good for about 15 transactions a second worldwide, which is like no transactions per person globally. If you break it down, uh, do all that math. It's it's, it's twice as much as BTC, which is seven transactions a second at the very best. Uh, You can look at some of these other chains that that do some crazy stuff. You know, maybe you can get 5,000 a second out of XRP and XLM, but you're compromising a lot uh, in order to use those networks. They, their consensus mechanisms are are not by proof of work. They've just like entire portions of the network have just shut off or, or whatever. Uh, you have a lot of experimental chains. You have chains with governance problems. So like EOS is another one from like 2017 was the big promised. Uh, we're finally going to scale. Well, they've, they've forked and split and been screwed because their governance is, is just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, can you make money on shit coins? The answer is unequivocally Fuck yes. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I've made yes. a ton of money playing these stupid coins. Uh, yes. Yeah, I bought, I just basically shotgun blasted in December mm-hmm. and bought a whole bunch of garbage that I knew nothing about. And yes. it's up, you know, I have multiple five and six baggers. It's like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it but it's all, I mean, it's just a blind guess. I know nothing about what I'm doing in this space. Yeah. So. And, and that's, and that indicates exactly how fundamentally broken uh, the economy is. And it's like, it's great. I mean, I, I trade too. Like there, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. I always make the, you know, people tell me like, Oh, you know, how can you be so into the fundamentals, but then also trade all these shit coins. And it's like, man, imagine I was like a wind energy executive, but I knew that oil was going to blow up and probably like, why would I not invest in oil? Like it's, it's my, my, my portfolio is my portfolio. You can go screw yourself. But, <laughs> but I That's tell people I about it too. That it's like during bull markets, it's the dumbest people that make the most money. So yes. if you get really rich, you know, it indicates how unintelligent you are. Yeah. How likely well, <laughs> so. I mean, it's the dumbest people that make the most money, but it's also the the most prudent or least greedy people that get out before the whole game ends. So yes. like you have to have a balance <laughs> of of reckless stupidity sure. paired with like, <laughs> okay, I've made enough, <laughs> you know? Yes. And, and that's, it's a difficult lane to straddle. I mean, it's the same thing with like Dogecoin. Dogecoin yeah. is a perfect example of a project that has, they've had no development in about five years. There <laughs> is no development team. There's not a native wallet. There is no Doge wallet. 
So if you go look for like, hey, what Doge wallet do I use? You can use like multi-currency wallets. Like there are people that support Doge, but there is no Doge wallet because there's no lead developer. There's no development team. There's been no (laughs) code pushed in five years. It is a dead project by all measures. And it it is outperformed the entire market because of Elon Musk, which is itself just like, just bonkers. But I mean, I have friends in real life posting pictures on Facebook, wearing their Dogecoin shirts and talking about the future of finance. And I'm like, bro, like we've been friends for a while. (laughs) Like, like sell, if if you're up 10,000%, like you might be, like right. at least take back your initial investment, maybe maybe double. Like, oh, like let's dude, let's ride by all take, means. <laughs> take half your profit for the love of God. I I don't right. understand people. I mean, I I called it a couple of weeks ago. I knew that there would be a, a a top, and it was an intermediate top. It went, it ran up, and then it collapsed. And then I said again, I said, you know, with Elon going on SNL, sell right before he goes on air. Yep. Again, same same uh, you know exact arc, and it's just yeah. It's just such a, it's such an obvious meme, nothing. It's just, but you can make real money. So like, if you want to play it, you know, just know what you're doing. Just don't, don't think this is a real store of value. Cause that's the last thing it is. Um, So God, again, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with questions. I, we, uh, we've already almost done an hour. So I think we should probably do another, another segment at some point in the future. I think I might, I might push to have you on with uh, some of the the maximalists that I know if you'd be open to it. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, because I, I just think that, you know, from my, as someone who was trying, because you don't probably know much about my background, but I'm I'm building and selling six houses in San Diego hey. in the next four months. And right. I, will, I will be <laughs> very liquid and very interested in diversifying more aggressively into the crypto space to try and sure. preserve some of my, my wealth through what I think is the great reset, which is coming. Um, mm-hmm. So... I need to get to the bottom of this. I am trying desperately, not even for my audience's sake, for my own sake, yep. I am trying desperately to figure out what is that vehicle that gets me to the other side of this insanity as fiat sure. resets globally. And I'm not saying it's imminent, but it will probably happen within the next decade. And it's yeah. just, it's a tough, tough call. So at this point, it sounds as if BSV would be your preferred vehicle. Really? I mean, like, my problem with like BTC as a store of value is that however much you receive, like when you receive a BTC payment, you cannot be sure how much of it you can repurpose in the future. The fees are not only high, but they're also variable. So depending on traffic. So let's say in five years, like, yeah, you've made a lot of money in BTC, but it's spread out across a handful of wallets and and this and that. And like, Hey, I need to pull some money out. Like I actually need to pay bills or, or something in my life. And then you go, you know, on paper, it looks like you have 50 grand. And then once you consolidate and do all these different things, it comes out like maybe it's 30 grand or 40 grand, or, you know, like you've lost $10,000 in fees because of the way that it all got consolidated. And it's like, well, something can't really be a store of value if you can't predict how much of that value can be repurposed in the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the velocity of money. And BSV has the most ability to create velocity. So if I have let's say I have 10,000 BSV sitting in a wallet, I can spend all 10,000 of those BSV and, and they will work. So if we need, if we're going to have a, a global economic collapse where fiat currencies are a mess and nobody can figure out who, you know, who's even in charge, who's distributing the new money, that kind of thing. Well, BSV allows you to tokenize special purpose currencies. You can create all kinds of 
incredible things on top of it. You can use it as a commodity currency. You can do all these different things. Uh, it can even be a settlement layer. Like BTC does not even have enough capacity to be a settlement layer for the big financial players and things. It just plainly doesn't work for what they say it does. And I understand that, you know, these problems in theory could be fixed if there was a ton of willpower and a giant change in culture over in the BTC camp. Uh, and therefore, I think probably the the most prudent conservative thing to do would be to hold what I call the Bitcoin basket. Um, hold the BTC, the BCH, and the BSV. Like, if, if you can afford one BTC, which is 60-ish grand, well, then shoot. Buy a BCH, which is about a thousand bucks, and buy one BSV too, which is about four hundred dollars, and then you have no risk. You have one to one to one exposure to the major Bitcoin chains, and then if one of them collapses because the other one grows, you've lost nothing. So, gotcha. in my opinion, that is the single lowest risk thing that you can do with your Bitcoin. That's a diversified Bitcoin portfolio. Yes. Well, and, and then you don't have to be political. Then it doesn't right. matter. You can, you can root for the best horse for that specific race. You know, you don't have to be a prick to everybody. Out, out of the blue, Roger, <laughs> Roger Ver sent me 50 bucks of uh, BCH like nice. a couple months ago, and it's up to 150 today. So I'm hey, like, I'm like that's that's a good way to, to get someone to start to be a believer. If it's up 3x yeah, sure in, in three months, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, um, for sure. Anyways, it, it's been a, a pleasure, Kurt. I, I learned a lot. I think my audience will really appreciate it. Where where should they uh, to follow you to to learn more to stay up with you? Yeah, a bunch of places. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurt Walker Jr. Uh, if you want to get real cool, there's a whole social network built on BSV called Twitch. You can find me there. It is like Twitch, but with an E in the middle. Uh, you can also read my articles at CoinGeek.com, or you can watch the CoinGeek Weekly live stream, which is every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time across all CoinGeek branded social media. That's a live Q&A show. So if anybody has questions, Trollbox is open. I will talk about mostly Bitcoin, but <laughs> I have been known to go tangential uh, if something juicy hops into the Trollbox too. Nice. Well, it was a pleasure, man. I really appreciate you coming on. For sure. Thank you. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppin'. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton was the only sound Getting so 
so hot, must be air July. Screaming in the mic, a rip for 59. Miles to race, show that black guns matter. Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders. None of us wanted war, but we're ready. You know I be bopping and rock steady. Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, so don't get treated like a hoe.